everybody. My name is April Swears. I have had the sweet privilege of teaching the Bible at this very church for almost 20 years now. And so, yeah, yeah, so really excited. And I'll tell you, I've never been more excited about a study because I've never learned more than I have learned in just researching and writing this particular book. And I'm so excited to finally get to share it with you guys. I've been trudging through this topic for about a year plus, and so it's really fun to finally get to bring you in on it. Um, so welcome to heaven. I've been waiting to say that for weeks and weeks. You didn't know this is what it looks like, did you? Um, all right, well, let me open in a word of prayer, and then we will get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you so, so much for the, um, the truths that you've given us in your word. And uh, while there remains a lot of mystery, uh, you have revealed to us everything that we need to know to be uh, the people that you desire for us to be and to, to walk with Jesus and to, um, to one day experience this beautiful new creation that you have promised your people. And so, God, I pray as we begin today, and as even today, this lesson is going to um, hmm, challenge our thinking. Um, God, I pray that your spirit would just do what he does and uh, that you would keep me in a posture of humility, um, that you would keep us all teachable and open to what, uh, what is, is, is revealed through your word, and, uh, Lord, that we would just enjoy journeying together through the story of Scripture and just opening our eyes to what it has to reveal to us about the age to come. And we uh, love you. We thank you in advance. And we give this time to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. All right. It's funny. I am not going to use all three of these Bibles. It makes me look like a really good Bible teacher, doesn't it? I've got three different Bibles. No, I'm going to be using this one. This is for, like, I'm going to reference it later. Don't, don't get worried. Don't get worried. All right. Well, in his book titled Heaven, which I highly recommend uh, and have used greatly in my own, my own research, uh, Randy Alcorn tells the story of Florence Chadwick, who is an American swimmer known for long-distance, open-water swimming, which is like next level, like the actual ocean. I don't know. Crazy. Uh, she was the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions, setting a time record each time. Well, in 1952, she decided to take on a new challenge, and she stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of Catalina Island with the goal to swim to the shore of mainland California. Now, she would be flanked by two small boats that looked out for sharks, <laughs> and would provide any assistance if needed. And Florence's mother was in one of those boats. Now, after about 15 hours of swimming, a very thick fog set in. And when Florence begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother assured her that she was close and that she could make it. But exhausted and thoroughly convinced that she could not finish the swim, she stopped and was pulled out of the water. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered that she was less than a mile from the shore. At a news conference the next day, she said this, and I'm quoting. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And we are going to spend the next couple of months, it's a 10-week study, including this week, uh, thoroughly examining the shoreline. We are going to make sure that we can see the shore. Starting in the book of Genesis and working our way through the biblical story all the way to Revelation, we are going to see what the Bible reveals to us about heaven. And this is a very important endeavor for a few reasons. Uh, the most obvious being the fact that death is an unavoidable reality for every single person uh, in this room, every single person on the planet. There isn't a single human who has not wondered about life after death. 
and so it's relevant for that reason. The study is also important because life is very, very hard. And a lot of dreams go unrealized. It's not uncommon to spend a good portion of our lives swimming in a fog with no end to the suffering in sight. And all the cute little religious platitudes and out-of-context verses that well-meaning Christians throw at our pain, they just don't work, do they? They don't make it go away. They don't provide any relief. They actually could end up doing quite the opposite. And so what we need when the fog rolls in is a fresh vision of the shoreline, a fresh vision of where we're headed, or as some of the old-timer theologians would say, the, the horizon of eternity. We need to fix our eyes on the horizon of eternity. Well, it's also imperative that we have an accurate view of the shoreline. And what I want to do in this first session together is I want to very gently put before you the unsettling idea that most Christians do not have an accurate view of the eternal state of the shoreline where we're headed. And so if you will, you can turn one of two places. You can turn to page 10 of your workbook or, because you're certainly not required to buy a workbook, it's also in your listening guide. All right, but it's, it's called Perspectives on Heaven, and there's um, some chart-type things on the page, so page 10 of your workbook, or it's a part of the listening guide. I think it's the second page of your listening guide. It's also on there. So if you don't have a book, no problem. I'll give you guys a chance to turn there. And you'll see on this page there are two main perspectives on heaven. Of course, there's variations. Um, but these are, uh, the first one is a traditional view. This is the view that most, uh, I would say, Western Christians um, hold, have, have been taught. It's the view that shows up in our songs about heaven. It's the view reflected in Christian funeral messages. We see it in our gospel tracts. It's reflected in our gospel presentations. It's the view depicted in most children's Bibles and the one that any of us in this room over the age of 40 saw depicted on the flannel graph. Anybody remember flannel graph? Anybody go that far back? Yeah, yeah, I used, to love, I used to go home and, like, pretend to have a flannel graph and, like, play Sunday school teacher. Man, I thought the flannel graph was so cool. Anyway, sad our kids don't know about that anymore. Um, if you don't know, it was, like, just this board of flannel, like, you know, and, and stuff would stick to it. The pictures had, you know, the same thing. It would just, like, stick to the board. Anyway, um, some of you are like, what is she talking about? All right. All right, so let's, let's walk Let's walk through this traditional view together, all right? So basically, according to the traditional view, the, the whole scheme is divided into two sections, right? So you have this present age, our life here on earth as believers, all right? Eventually, we are going to experience physical death, all right? And at that moment of physical death, we are going to have something of, I'm, I'm calling it the pearly gate moment, all right? Some kind of... Um, uh, situation after you die where you will, in effect, stand before God, and he will say, why should I let you into my heaven? This is like a part of our gospel presentations, right? And if you have the right answer, you get in, right? So it's kind of that passcode, I think I've called it. it says correct passcode. And for American evangelicals, the right, the, the, the right passcode is, I have trusted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. If you can remember the date that you ask Jesus into your heart, bonus points, all right? All right, so you say the right password, you have put your faith in Jesus, and whoop, up to heaven you go, all right? And heaven, most commonly, if you look even in children's Bibles, images, how it's described in songs and things, heaven is essentially a never-ending worship service in the sky, all right? So we were in robes. And we're singing, holy, holy, holy is Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Right, right? So, like, it's like the best. And you even, I've been in worship services, and the worship leader's like, oh, we got a little taste of heaven tonight. And I'm like, okay, this was good. This was good. Um, don't want to do this forever. Right? 
But that's kind of, I mean, I'm not a choir person, all right? So it like, doesn't sound super fun to me. Um, but that's kind of the general, the general vision we get. Now, I put in parentheses there, it's more of a ghost-like existence. That varies from person to person. I kind of have always thought of it as like embodied-ish. Like I'm sort of a body. But like there ain't no bathrooms in heaven. Right? Right? Like we're kind of in a body because we got to have something to put the robe on. Um, but like maybe a little bit see-through. I don't know. Just kind of like, yeah, really bright. We're bright, you know, kind of thing. And then, of course, in the traditional view, heaven is a spiritual abode. It's not, it's not earthly. It's not here. It's up there in the air. And in, in a, of course, now we have pictures of space, so we know it's, like, not air there. But it must be in a different dimension, a different time, space, whatever. Okay? So that's the traditional view of heaven. That's the view that most people, it's the view that I held, all right, for the majority of my life. Okay, so that is the traditional view. Let's move on to what, okay, in the book and on your paper, it's called the biblical view. Don't call it that yet. Don't call it that yet, because I haven't shown you that yet. Let's just call it April's view for now, okay? You don't have to think it's biblical yet, and you don't have to think it's biblical at the end either, but I'm going to try to show you in scripture why this is my view, all right? But for now, you can just call it that crazy lady April. That's her view. All right, so in this view, um, instead of having two divisions divided by death, we actually have three. All right, so we have our, the believer experiences present eternal life here embodied on earth. And I put it that way because it's really interesting. We'll study this. Um, but the way Jesus talked about eternal life is it's life of the age to come, but he talked about it in the present tense a lot. It's like the, the age to come has kind of like seeped into the now for people who belong to Jesus. So that's why I put present eternal life of the believer that we live here on this earth. All right, and then we experience physical death. Then we go into the second block, which I'm calling life after death. You could also refer to it as the present heaven. If you are in more uh, academic circles, they're going to call it the intermediate state. So if you're at seminary or with a bunch of like theology, Bible nerds, that's what they're going to call it, uh, the intermediate state. And this is the state like right after you die. This is what, what happens. And it's interesting because this is the part that we, it's the only thing we tend to care about. But it, it is not the focus of the biblical authors. In fact, we only have three clear scriptures about it. I put a fourth one there because eh, it can work too. Um, but let's, let me walk through these with you. Luke 23, 43 is um, Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross, all right? And, and he, uh, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's, I love this scene because it proves to us that you don't have to have done, you know, the big checklist for Jesus. Like he, he at that moment believes that Jesus is king and that's enough. Right? Because Jesus responds and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Right, And so Jesus there is talking about this intermediate state, this present heaven. All right, And then we have Philippians 1, 21 through 23. This is where Paul's kind of saying, you know, I, um, I've got a lot of fruitful work to do here, but um, it, it, it would be better by far to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, it would be better to be with Jesus, but I have fruitful work. So he's kind of torn. He's kind of torn. Well, he's talking about life after death in that. He's talking about this intermediate state. Second uh, Corinthians 5.8, this is another really precious verse to, to us, especially when someone you love has passed away, where it talks about being absent from the body, present with the Lord. So again, this message that we are immediately, those who are in Christ are immediately with Jesus. And then I threw this one in there. It's actually a typo. It's Revelation 6, 9, not Revelation 9, 6. Um, but it is a scene. Okay, so pulling any verse out of Revelation is just a train wreck, right? <laughs> but it does depict the souls of the martyrs um, in heaven, and they are, they're under the altar. So they, too, are with Jesus. So it's a picture of heaven, the current, the present heaven, the intermediate state, and Again, those, those people are with, with Jesus. 
Now, there's a lot of mystery about this. There's people ask, well, is it in, or do you have a body? Um, we don't know because the resurrection of the body doesn't happen until the second coming of Jesus. So it could be embodied. We could have like an intermediate body. Um, maybe not. We don't know. Um, there, there's the question of do we have a sense of time in the intermediate state? So are our loved ones that have gone before us, are they waiting for this third phase? Um, do they, are, are they like, man, going on year 50, right? Like, do, do they have a sense of, is it the same sense of space-time as we have? Or do they essentially go to sleep and they kind of like wake up and like, hey, the, the new, new creation, right? We, again, we don't know. We don't have a lot of information. So there's, um, I, I lean away from just the soul sleep view, um, but there are some like scholars that are legit, have a high view of scripture that would say, yeah, it could, could totally be the way it is. So not a lot of information, but enough to assure every person who is in Christ that when they die, they are with Jesus. So there doesn't need to be fear. There doesn't need to be anxiety about that. We are with Jesus. It is a place of peace. We are held with him. All right? But there's very little that scripture actually tells us about that. Um, all right, moving on. So you die, you're with Jesus, but then you're actually waiting because it is not, and we'll look at this, it is not, um, what is the word, natural for a human to be disembodied. It's like never what God intended, right? So the, the whole goal is, is for those bo- the body to be resurrected and joined with the spirit as it should be. Um, and so that's what we would be waiting for, and that is going to happen at the second coming of Jesus, right? So Christ returns and ushers in. He consummates. So he's inaugurated the kingdom through his death and resurrection, but it's consummated. It's brought into full reality when he returns. So you could refer to this as the age to come. You could refer to it as the future heaven. You could refer to it as the eternal state. You can refer to this as new creation. Or you can call it, and I didn't put lists here, but new heaven and new earth. That's what John calls it in Revelation 21 and 22. He's riffing off of Genesis 1 and um, Isaiah, used that phrase, um, that exact phrase. All right, so this is the point where all of the bodies that have been buried, that have been cremated, that have drowned, that have been burned at the stakes, all the things, all the bodies are going to be resurrected and live forever. This is what's going to, you're all going to struggle with this. This is, you ready? On earth. On a renewed, remade, resurrected earth. All right. You don't have to believe that yet. You don't have to believe that yet. It's okay. It's okay. We got 10 weeks. Okay. We got 10 weeks. Okay. That's why I said you can call this April's view for now. Like you can literally, some of you are mad right now. You can cross out biblical. Cross it out and write April's view. That's fine. That's fine. No, you guys are my You guys are sweet. Um, and I want to show you this. We're not going to spend a lot of time. Uh, today's more of a history lesson. But I do want you to turn to Revelation 21 because I want to kind of show you kind of where we get this. Now, we won't study this passage in depth until week nine or week eight of our study. So it'll be later on. We had a lot of work to do before we get here. But I just want to read you um, a few verses from here and just show you kind of where, where we get the idea um, of this age to come. All right, so Revelation, into your Bible, chapter 21. And uh, John is writing, and he says this. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We'll talk about what that means. Uh, And the sea was no more. We will talk about what that means. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. All right, so we will talk a lot about this, but Jerusalem was the place where the temple was. And so in the Hebrew mind, it's the place where heaven and earth overlapped the most, right? That's where God's presence was um, in the holy of holies. And so when he gets this vision, he gets this vision of this New Jerusalem coming down, and it's going to encompass, it's going to encompass everything, right? 
Um, so it's, it's coming down. I'm going to draw your attention to that one more time. It is coming down out of heaven. That's God's space, right? From God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. So there's a union about to take place. Um, I believe it's the union of heaven and earth are coming together again, like it was in the beginning in the garden, all right? Verse 3, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Okay, so here's the big announcement, okay? Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. Notice he does not say, look, humanity is finally up in God's dwelling. No, he says, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. And they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. What good, good news that is. But I wanted to point to you the direction of how things are flowing. Heaven is coming down. God is coming to dwell with humanity. Whereas in the traditional view, all we ever hear about or sing about is humanity going up to live with God. What we're going to see is, we, and this is why it's going to take us, we've got to go from Genesis to Revelation. What we're going to see, I want you to see a pattern. And I want you to have eyes wide open. If you see anywhere where people are going up to God, you let me know. I know of two, and we're going to look at those. But all throughout Scripture, it's God coming here, God coming here, God coming here, God coming here. And then it culminates in this like, whoa, God, heaven and earth are one, and God dwells with humanity. We see this a little bit again. Um, look at verse 10 of Revelation 21. It says, he then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, again, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. So again, if, you don't, if you're like, oh, it's so different than I've ever heard, I understand that. I, I would not, if, if you left here today, I'm just like, oh, okay, I agree with her. That's like intellectually not good. Like you, you need to hang out with me for 10 weeks and, and let me show you in the scriptures why I hold this view. And then you get to, and then you get to decide if, if, if you buy it or not, right? And we are still friends if you don't, okay? Um, so anyway, that is, the, that is the, the, the biblical view, right? So it's a totally different direction. Instead of us going up to heaven, heaven is coming here, all right? Talk about paradigm shifting. <laughs> it's a big, a big difference. All right, so this begs the question, why? Why do most Christian, at least in the, in, in the Western world, I can't speak for like Eastern Orthodox Christians or, 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 or that portion of the world, but at least Christians in the Western world, why do most of them hold the traditional view instead of the biblical view, or for now we're calling it April's view? Why? Why is this? And to answer that question, we've got to do a little history lesson. And um, it's going to be a little history. It'll be, don't be like, oh. Yeah, this isn't the fun part. I know you guys came here to study the Bible, not to study history. But we do need to, um, to delve a little bit into history. And here's why. Because theology, study of God, study of Scripture, interpretation of ever, ever been a void. There has never been in the history of the planet a smart dude in a room all by without influences just studying the Bible biased interpretation of it. This has never happened. It's never happened in the history of the <laughs> That's not how it works. Um, there are always, always outside forces influencing what's going on inside the church, influencing how we interpret scripture. We all have a lens through which we are seeing things. This is true of every generation ever. All right? It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just part of being human. Right? We live in uh, a corporate, collective society. So we're not loners. We, we do this in community, right? And so it influences kind of what we think, and it shapes um, how we see things. 
So no generation in history can say that their theology has not been in some way shaped by their culture or shaped by the world around them. Again, that's not necessarily like a terrible thing. It's just it is what it is. It just is, right? It's important to be aware of that so that we can develop the skill of looking back and identifying and at times critiquing the ways that Christian theology has been shaped by these larger outside forces. Again, they're not necessarily bad. They just are, and they they shape our thinking. There are certain things happening in our world today that we are in this room freaking out about, and if you don't think that's shaping the way you read the Bible, it is. (laughs) It is, and that happens in, in every generation. And so that's why historical theology, honestly, it's not my jam. It kind of puts me to sleep. But it's really important to understand, like, historically, how have Christians thought about this and this and this? How did they think 500 years ago? How did they think, you know, so, so we can kind of look at trends, and you can kind of see, oh, okay, well, that's what was going on in the culture at the time. That's why they felt this way about this. That's why they had this interpretation of this passage, right? Because we never do theology in a void. And so we need to be aware of how we are being shaped um, by our cultural influences, um, be aware of our presuppositions we're bringing to a passage because we all have them, and, um, and we can't get rid of them, but we can be aware of them. Um, but we also need to look back and think, okay, the people that have gone before us, what were, how, how were they being shaped? What, what were their thoughts and ideas being shaped by? Um, thankfully, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Um, it's very hard to do when you're in it. It's a lot easier to look back 100 years ago. What was going on? Why were they... You know, why did this emerge? Why did this come on scene? Why was this so popular, right? So we have a little bit of the ability to do that. And so we're going to do a little bit of that this morning, just a little bit of critical thinking about the history of ideas and how that has shaped our understanding of heaven, okay? All right, so we are going to start with, or there's three, three uh, forces or influence that I'm going to identify. I'm sure there's so many more. Again, I'm not a historian. I'm learning this stuff just like you're learning this stuff. I'm not an expert, but these are the three big ones, all right? So the first one is Platonism, all right? Most of us in this room have probably heard of Plato, pretty important Greek philosopher, all right? So Platonism, Gnosticism, all right? And number three would be classic dispensationalism, all right? So those are the three influences that we're going to look at. Um, And just a little disclaimer, I'm about to commit the cardinal sin of gross oversimplification. So if we have anybody sitting in here that's like a Plato scholar or a Gnosticism scholar, or they would be like, oh my gosh, she's just destroying this, right? So I'm just giving you um, very basic understanding of, ha- of what their views are and how these have shaped our, our views of heaven, all right? And I'm going to quote people that are just way smarter and have researched this. I had to put the brakes on the whole like history thing because I was like, I gotta actually study, I gotta teach these women the Bible. So, but it's a deep, deep hole. It's a deep well. So if you want to go a deeper into these three, you certainly, certainly can. All right, so let's start with Platonism. And I've got some quotes for you on your listening guide so you can kind of follow along. I didn't want you to get lost. Um, so Plato is a Greek philosopher. He remains one of the most influential thinkers in the history of the Western world. None of us will ever, ever, ever know the extent to which our thoughts and ideas have been shaped by this thinker. It's just, it, it, it's just hard to calculate. Um, So he put forth a view of the person, this is actually novel, right? A person composed of an immortal soul or mind, right? The true self, according to Plato, and the transitory corruptible body. So he separated those two. One is good, the other is bad. So here's a quote from um, Anthony Hokuma. He wrote a great book called The Bible in the Future, And I'm quoting from him there. He says, the concept of the immortality of the soul was developed in the mystery religions of ancient Greece and was given philosophical expression in the writings of Plato and various dialogues, particularly in the, I don't know how to pronounce this, but Phaedo, does anybody familiar with Greek philosophy know how to pronounce that? Dialogue? No? Oh, okay. So then I can come up with any pronouncement I want. And you guys will be like, yeah, she's got it. Um, so we'll say Fido. So Plato sounds too much like Fido, like a dog. But anyway, 
uh, Plato advances the view that the body and the soul are to be thought of as two distinct substances. The thinking soul is divine and eternal, right? The body, being composed of matter, is an inferior substance. It's of lower value than the soul. So the rational soul, or the, I also don't know how to pronounce this, noose, is the immortal part of man, which came down from the heavens where it enjoyed a blissful existence, pre-existence. Because the soul lost its wings in the pre-existent state, it entered the body, dwelling in the head. At the death of the body, at death, the body simply disintegrates. But the noose, or the rational soul, returns to the heavens. If its course of action has been just and honorable, if not, it appears again in the form of another man or of an animal. But the soul itself is indestructible. In Plato's view, the immortality of the soul is rooted in a rationalistic metaphysics. The rational is what's real. And whatever is non-rational, so that would be anything material, has a low kind of reality. The soul is therefore considered a superior substance, uh, inherently indestructible and therefore immortal, whereas the body is of an inferior substance, mortal and doomed for total destruction. Hence, the body is thought of as a tomb for the soul, which is really better off without the body. In this system of thought, therefore, there is no room for the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. It certainly would be no room for a, a doctrine of the resurrection of the created world either. All right? So that is kind of Platonism in a nutshell. The thing to take from that is that in Platonism, there's a sharp division between body and soul. The material, there's a sharp division between body and soul, sharp division between material and immaterial. This is often referred to as Platonic dualism. So it's a very dualistic view of reality. All right? And here's the tricky thing. If you have adopted, whether consciously or unconsciously, a Platonic view of reality, so what is spiritual is good, what is material and physical is bad, it's just decaying, it's going to just rot away. If that's, your, if that's your viewpoint, that's your mindset, and you bring that reality to the Bible, you can find a heck of a lot of verses to support it. <laughs> you can. You can. Um, and, and so what we're going to see in this study, all right, is that Yes, you can, you can pull out a verses to support that, that, you know, material, immaterial dualism of Plato. But the story the Bible is telling, the story that spans from Genesis to Revelation runs absolutely counter to a Platonic view of reality. The Bible as a whole, if you look at the story, it does not support a body-soul divide. In fact, according to the Bible, you and I don't have a soul. We are a soul. And your body is part of that dynamic. And so uh, we're going to look at that. Again, you're like, oh, we're going to look at that. We're going we're gonna to walk through this together. Um, but, but that's what you glean from if you look at the whole story of the Bible. And this is a great place to pause. And I always like to, as I'm teaching, kind of like, okay, let's hit the pause button. Let me give you a little Bible study tip. All right? So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm going to pause a little bit. Um, this is a great place to say that the Bible is not a collection of individual verses. In fact, there weren't even chapter and verse divisions until the Middle Ages. Right, but we treat it as that. Like we, okay, I need a verse about this, and then I need a verse about this, and that's fine. It's fine. But if you're really wanting to define, okay, what is the Bible? It's not just a collection of individual verses that we can pull out and apply um, to specific things that, that we're studying. The Bible is ultimately and fundamentally, it's a story. It's a story. It's one cohesive story that centers on Jesus. And so any thoughts, actions, ideologies that are inconsistent with that story are not biblical, regardless of how many individual verses you might be able to pull out and tack onto it. And um, this is really, really important, because there's a lot of people, especially now that we have social media, I mean, everybody's like, this is biblical, this is biblical. You know, biblical womanhood, biblical manhood, biblical this, biblical that. And you're like, okay, you can just slap this, the, the word biblical on something. And, you know, a lot of people will follow along. Like, oh, I be, we all want to be biblical. 
right? That's what we want. And so when someone tells you that something is biblical, right, you just do some digging. Find out what they mean by that. Is it biblical because they've found some Bible verses to support it? Or is it biblical because it's deeply consistent with the overall story the Bible is telling? And let me give you an example. It's a dreadful example um, from American history. Uh, slavery in America. All right, so it's common knowledge that it was passionately defended by Christians using Bible verses. Passionately. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention has had like a public apology. Of, like they were like forerunners, like hardcore, right? To so many people sitting in pews on Sunday mornings during that time period, they were told this is biblical. Because somebody slapped a few Bible verses on them. But if you look at the Bible as a story, and you start in Genesis, and you're like, what, is, what story is the Bible telling? What? You look at the redemption story the Bible is telling. What you find are strong, unmistakable themes of liberation. My goodness, you're not even into the second book of the Bible when slaves are being freed. Come on, right? What you find is, 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 is an unmistakable theme of ethnic reconciliation. I don't know you've been taught about the book of Galatians, but that is literally what it's about. In Ephesians, and almost all of Paul's writings. This gospel like brought Jews and Gentiles together. Shocking, shocking. And that's what Paul is focusing on. Um, the themes of the Bible, all humans made in the image of God. In the story of the Bible, you see a profound emphasis on all nations coming to worship King Jesus. Like, I don't care how many Bible verses you have. There's, there's no biblical grounds for defending something like slavery, and yet so many Christians did it. So many Christians did it. And so, again, I want us to start thinking, biblical doesn't mean I've got ten Bible verses that back this up. Biblical means the storyline of Scripture, the big, broad themes of Scripture, the trajectory of Scripture backs this up. And if you can't show me that, not buying it. Not buying it. Of course, that necessitates that we need to know the story of Scripture, which is why we're here, right? And we're going we're gonna to walk through that together. Um, and we get better at it as the, years, as the years go on. But I just wanted to stop and say, I see this word biblical thrown around a lot. We got to have some discernment about what that means because a lot of things, horrible, atrocious things, have been presented as biblical throughout history, and they were not. And they were not consistent with the story that the Bible is telling. All right, so that is Platonism. All right, and, and again, it just, it, it's had such a huge impact. <laughs> and it's really what stands behind this traditional view of heaven. All right. Um, I'm trying to figure out, from what I've studied, this Platonic view of soul-body division really took root hardcore in the Middle Ages. And that's kind of, it, it's stuck. It's stuck, and it carries on to today. But you can fact-check me on that. I'm not, I'm still a little bit learning that. All right, well, let's move on to Gnosticism. All right, so this is one of the major ways that Platonism entered Christian thought, was through Gnosticism. And I have another quote for you by N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope. He said, the Gnostics believed, like Plato, that the material world was an inferior and dark place, evil in its very existence, but that within this world could be found certain people who were meant for something else. These children of light, excuse me, were like fallen stars, tiny pinpricks of light currently hidden within a gross material body. Once they realized who they were, though, this knowledge, or from the Greek, gnosis, that's where the name comes from, would enable them to enter into a spiritual existence in which the material world would no longer count. Having entered upon that spiritual existence, they would then live by it through death and into the infinite world beyond space, time, and matter. 
So it's kind of like Platonism, um, very re- religiousified, yeah, kind of on steroids, right? There's a select group that enter into this special knowledge, and so they're able to slough off this terrible, awful body and all this terrible, awful world and all that is material and just experience a spiritual existence, right? So that's kind of the, the gist of it. So again, we see the dualistic view of reality, that which is spiritual is good, that which is material is bad. Um, Gnosticism was one of the most significant heresies facing the early church in the first three centuries. It's why the earliest church creeds, we don't, we don't cite the apostles or the Nicene Creed in our denomination, but many of you come from faith backgrounds that did, and those are some of our earliest creeds, and um, they are very clear that Christ is not just redeemer, he is creator. Right, so there's an emphasis on God, Jesus as creator in those creeds because they were fighting against these Gnostic views, which would downplay creation, say, ah, bad, gross, slough it off. And so it was kind of this reminder, no, no, creation is good, right? Um, the material world, our bodies included, it's God's handiwork. He declared it very good. He, had, he has not since changed his mind about that. Um, here's another quote from Michael Williams. He wrote a book called This World is Not My Home. Um, He says the Gnostic Christian, which honestly in my view, kind of an oxymoron there, but we'll give it to him. The Gnostic Christian, the Christian who's who's kind of folding in these Gnostic ideas, the Gnostic Christian wanted to say yes to Jesus, but no to creation, thus severing the intrinsic biblical relationship between Christ and creation. The Gnostic was thoroughly pessimistic concerning this material world, its history, and our life in the world. Seeing matter in terms of decay and time in terms of death, the Gnostic experiences the world as alienation. He has an abiding sense that he is misplaced within the universe and that the material world is the result of some cruel joke or giant faux pas. If we are to be saved, we must be saved from this world. Redemption is the undoing of creation. It's the liberation of the human soul from the prison of the body and the material world. So that's kind of Gnosticism in a nutshell. Again, if you wanted to summarize it, what is spiritual, good, all that is material, bad. Okay? Now this leads us to one of the most influential resurgences of Gnostic ideology in the modern church era, and that is classic dispensationalism. Now, I want to be really clear. I've inserted the word classic very intentionally because what I'm about to describe is first-generation dispensational theology. The dispensationalism of today is much more nuanced than the dispensationalism of the early 1900s, all right? So a lot of your dispensationalists today will actually disagree with some of the original things that that were taught. So I want to be fair. I never, I hate lumping people into a category. So if you hold to dispensationalist theology or you know someone who does, like don't necessarily lump them into what I'm about to describe here. All right? Does that make sense? I'm describing kind of the the OG. All right? The original. Okay. Okay. so I'm, I'm, I'm describing theology of the, the, big, the big kind of names associated with this are C.I. Schofield and Lewis Sperry Chafer. Um, dispensationalism spread like wildfire through North America in large part due to the popularity of the Schofield Reference Bible. This Bible was published in 1909, and it quickly became the best-selling, one of the best-selling Bibles in all of history and has dominated a very visible, very public uh, portion of American evangelical imagination for the last 100 years plus. And wouldn't you know, guess what my very first study Bible was? I have it right here. It's a Schofield study Bible. It's the NIV, which I think Schofield was very disappointed in me for not having a KJV. But it is a Schofield uh, reference Bible, as you can see, it is well loved. Um, how many? How many? Anybody else have one of these on their shelf? Yeah, a lot of you. Yeah, it was kind of like the 
I mean, everybody had one. There was a time when I was talking to my mom, and I was like, she's like, yeah, all my friends had a Schofield reference Bible. It was just the Bible you had. If you love Jesus and you love the Bible, you had a Schofield reference Bible. Um, so uh, see some, some popular things that really uh, merge into popular culture. So things like A Thief in the Night. Anybody traumatized by that film? All right. Um, for those young, younger ones in the room, the Left Behind series. Uh, Hal Lindsey's The great, Late Great Planet Earth. Um, and the, the Christian Zionist movement all exist because of Schofield and his best-selling popular reference Bible. All right, so those are all things that come down the hatch of dispensational theology. I, again, am going to pause right now and give us a little Bible study tip. I want to say something about study Bibles. Um, so, Schofield Reference Bible. One guy, one guy, was responsible for writing all the notes in it. Okay? That is also true of my second study Bible was a Ryrie study Bible. He's also a hardcore dispensationalist, so... Man, I've had to unlearn a lot of things. All right, so, which I love Charles Ryrie, amazing theologian. Oh, nothing but respect. Um, but anyway, his study Bible also, the only person who contributed to those notes, certainly he had oversight and stuff, but it was, it was Charles Ryrie. Uh, MacArthur's study Bible, guess who wrote those notes? One guy named John MacArthur, right? Uh, you have a Spurgeon study Bible, whatever. You know, all these study Bibles that have notes in them written by one person. The problem with that is, unlike if you were to read a commentary written by one person, that's physically separate from your Bible. So you're reading, you're like, this is scripture, this is a commentary over here. It's a different book. It's not, not revelation, it's interpretation, it's one guy's opinion. Something happens, though, when those commentary notes get put in your Bible. Like, in your Bible. They're like on the same page as as your Bible, and so you're reading along, and you're reading the scripture, and you're like, oh, I don't know what that means, and so you go down here, and you kind of get a little help, which is the beauty of a study Bible, right? The Bible's confusing. It is nice to have someone to help you out a little bit, right? So I'm not, a, I'm a fan of study Bibles, all right? But when you have a study Bible where all the notes were written by one person, you are only getting that one person's view, and there's a lot of things in scripture that there's a pretty broad spectrum of interpretations, right? So if you had a Schofield reference Bible, you got one view of Revelation 20, Millennial Kingdom. You know how many views in Millennial Kingdom there are? Like five bajillion. Like so many. People that love the Bible, high view of Scripture. I mean, who in the world knows what that means? Nobody. Anybody that claims to probably has their own Bible, right? Um, because that's how people get popular enough to have their own Bible. They have a very strict, very definitive view, this is how it is, and everybody joins with them, and yes, they know the truth, you know, and so you get your own Bible. Here's, what I, here's my tip with study Bible. If you have a Ryrie study Bible, don't go home and throw it away. You don't need to stop using it, but here's for your next purchase, all right? Just put this on file. Next time you go to purchase a study Bible, I have brought in, this is the uh, NIV study Bible, another very popular study Bible. All right, so open to the front of NIV Study Bible. I found, they'll give like a little introduction. And this says, doctrinally, the NIV Study Bible reflects traditional evangelical theology where editors were aware of significant differences of opinion on key passages or doctrines. They tried to follow an even-handed approach by indicating those differences. For example, see the note on Revelation 20, verse 2. <laughs> um, and then you turn the page, and you have an entire page of contributors. So there's probably maybe 20, 30 names there, right? So if you're going to do the study Bible thing, and I encourage you to, this is a really helpful tool, find one that has several different contributors that are going to take an even-handed approach. Because if you get one that's done by one guy, just know you have to be even more aware that those notes are one interpretation, whereas there might be five other interpretations with people that have just as high a view of the authority of Scripture, right? So just beware. I have not been aware of that most of my life, and I'm, I'm studying heaven the last year, and I'm like, why in the heck have I been so off about this? And I'm like, oh, okay, well, 
my first Bible like ever was a Schofield reference Bible. That's probably why, you know. Um, but anyway, so that that's just a, a, a little tip, a little Bible study tip. If you're going to do the study Bible thing, do one that's got a, a team, a team of people contributing. Um, ESV is a good one. However, ESV is put out by Crossway, which is a Reformed publisher. So you're going to get a more Reformed, which is fine. That's fine. It's still going to have a team of people that are contributing to the notes there. So anyway, moving on. We are talking about classic, okay, where are we? classic dispensationalism. All right, so what is, what is dispensationalism? Again, this is an oversimplification, but this is a um, pretty consistent definition. I looked at a lot of different websites that defined it, even dispensational websites. You should let dispensationalists define themselves. <laughs> um, so I tried to give them that, that privilege there, and this is one I pulled um, from a dispensationalist source. It says, dispensationalism is a theological system that, emphasizes the literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. And this is how I think it gained so much ground. All right, so it emerged at the beginning of the 1900s. You know what else was emerging at the beginning of the 1900s? Um, liberal theology was starting to make inroads into the church. All right? So there were some mainstream denominations that were adopting more uh, liberal views of Scripture, have a, have a lower view of Scripture. All right? So they would more lean toward, well, almost everything in Scripture is metaphor, right? It's not necessary. It's not like actually what happened, right? And so dispensationalism provided a perfect pendulum swing away from that. So now we're going to say that, no, 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 we take every word literally because we aren't going to let those liberals take hold of the, you know, the Scriptures and, you know, whatever. So so it was like the perfect reaction to what was going on and what especially Christian fundamentalists feared the most, that a low view of Scripture would begin to spread, right? And so dispensationalists came along, and they all have just the most precious, most just commendable, high view of the authority of the Bible. I mean, that, I think, is their greatest contribution to the history of theology. And, and so that was just so appealing at the time because Christians were so fearful of this liberal theology seeping in. So then a dispensationalist stands up and says, if you have a high view of Scripture, you're going to take everything in the Bible literally. And that sounds so good, especially when you're afraid of people who aren't taking enough things literally, right? Now, anybody, just, you can just speak up. Do, do, do you think there might be any... Um, I don't know, maybe not the best thing to take everything in the Bible literally. Is there a reason why that might not be the best mode, modem operandum? Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things, and if you read through Scripture, there are so many different genres in the Bible. Now, if it were up to me, I would have del delivered the entire Bible in one of two modes, either historical narrative, which gave a lot of details. The Bible, if I wrote it, would be like volumes long. Um, I want the video camera footage, all right? Um, so it would be historical narrative, and then it would be law code. Just tell me what to do. Just, just tell me what to do. And would you please put it in a um, 2022 American context, all right? So I can like know, right? That's what I would do, that's what I would do. But that's not what God chose to do. So he delivers a book to us, in all kinds of genres. So there's historical narrative, which is a little, the most fun to read for me. Um, there is a lot of Hebrew poetry. There's some apocalyptic, ancient Hebrew apocalyptic, which is weird, right? Um, there's, there's law code, like she said, ancient law code that doesn't translate very well into our customs, right? There's these letters. I mean, most of the New Testament that we like love and quote, it's like, Somebody else's mail, you guys, right? I mean, it's, it's, written, it's written for us, but it wasn't originally written to us. You know, so we've got a lot of work to do before we can really translate these things into our own time and space. So, um, yeah, so poetry and apocalyptic, full of metaphors, full of symbols. Not wise to take that stuff literally, you know? And the reason, I know why they did it. Um, because there's this fear that, well, if it's a metaphor, it does, it's not real. 
But that's not true, right? Like, if one of you were to come to me and you're like, oh, I just started dating a new guy. He's a hot tamale. <laughs> right? I would, not, I would not think that you were saying your new boyfriend is actually a hot tamale. You're using a metaphor, right? I don't expect to see a little red candy or a little Mexican treat, right? Um, but I would, also, I would also assume that he's real. By using a metaphor, you're not saying I don't, my boyfriend doesn't exist or that he's not real. What you're communicating, there's a certain aspect of your boyfriend's reality and that, according to you, he must be a handsome guy right? So we just need to better understand metaphors. And the way the biblical authors use metaphor is a little bit different than the way our modern poets would employ metaphor. And so we have a little bit of a challenge before us. We've got to bridge that gap between, you know, we will say, like, oh, the ancient Bible, the Bible's ancient literature. But I don't think we really believe that. No, it really is old. And it really was written to a culture that's very different than ours. And so we've got to do that work of being a good tourist of the Bible, understanding what the authors intended to say in their time, and then bridging that gap into ours. And um, so, sounds really good, especially when everybody's freaking out about liberal theology, to stand on a stage and say, we're going to take every word of this book literally. Can you see why people were like, yes, yes, we are. But be, we need to be careful with that, because not everything is intended to be taken there. But that was like a huge, huge um, part of dispensational theology. All right, so it emphasizes a literal interpretation of biblical prophecy. Um, next, it recognizes a sharp distinction between Israel and the church, which I'll talk about in a second. And number three, it organizes the Bible into different dispensations or administrations. And Schofield called this rightly dividing the word of truth. If you were to take a class taught by a dispensationalist back in the day, they would absolutely need a whiteboard. And it would have circles. I think eight of them. You guys familiar? Anybody of you familiar with this? Eight dispensations. I think seven or eight circles. And then it would have like arrows going all around. And then it would have like writing over here and over here. It's very complex, complicated. I started studying dispensations and I was like, man, I don't ever need to feel bad about making things too complicated ever again. Because, like, a lot of people bought into this. This is very complicated. All right, so God worked in different ways and different portions of the Bible, and those were called dispensations. Now, the heart and soul of dispensational theology is the distinction. Oh, my gosh, it's 11 o'clock, you guys. All right, wow. All right, it went so fast. I should stick to my notes better. I timed these. Wow, okay. So, um, all right, we'll, just, we'll wrap this up really soon. So the heart and soul of dispensational theology is the distinction between Israel and the church. So in dispensationalism, Israel is the earthly people of God who will be given an earthly kingdom for a thousand years in fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. God made this land promise. He's got to fulfill it. All right. The church is the heavenly people of God, the spiritual people of God, who await a heavenly spiritual kingdom, which is why in dispensationalist theology, the pre-tribulation rapture is so, so important because God needs to get the church out of here so that he can focus on Israel and fulfill his promises to Israel. So what this means is that all of the references to the new heavens and the new earth in the Old Testament, which there's many of them, uh, most of the references to the kingdom of God in the Gospels, and of course, the millennial kingdom described in Revelation 20 have nothing to do with the church at all under this classic dispensationalist view. For the dispensationalists, the second coming of Christ is part of a scenario in which the present world, ruled and completely corrupted by Satan, is doomed to destruction while Christians are snatched up to heaven. And that's what you've seen in the, the movies, right? Really does make for a great movie also makes for a really great um, motivation to say the sinner's prayer and come forward, right? And there's a lot of people have genuine salvation experiences from that. It, God will God'll use that stuff, right? It's, it's cool. He'll, he'll use that stuff. Um, but if you look really closely, it's really just a reinvention of Platonic dualism and Gnostic ideology with a heck of a lot of Bible verses attached to it. There's this very sharp divide between that which is spiritual and that which is physical. It should also be noted that 
dispensationalism is almost entirely an American phenomenon that did not come on scene until the 1900s. I'm just going to leave that there. You can unpack that if you want. Now, as I have brushed up against the what I'm calling biblical view, you can just still call it April's view. Not just one place, but once you see it, you see it everywhere. Like, you're like, oh, this is what literally almost every scholar thinks now. <laughs> like, how did I miss this? How did I miss this for most of my life, right? Um, as I've unpacked that and tried to pinpoint, like, why, why didn't I see this? Why didn't I see the direction of God coming here, God coming here, God coming here? Why didn't I have a really high view of bodily resurrection? I never really, I mean, Easter's great, it's important, but honestly, I focus way more on the cross than the resurrection of Jesus. Been very, resurrection has been very downplayed in my theology my whole life. I think, why? Why, why is that? Um, and for me, not for everybody, but for me, it was the profound influence of dispensational theology. Again, my first Bible was a Schofield. My second Bible was a Ryrie. I mean, I was steeped in this. And I have a feeling that most of you come from a similar faith tradition as I do, and so that's had a big influence on you as well. And I tell you that to say um, this study is going to be, um, I don't think it will be hard, because if, if you are a dispensationalist, you love the Bible. That's one thing I can say. You love the Bible. But, it, but it's going to be, um, you're going to feel a little bit more rubbed, maybe, than somebody that comes from a different theological background. So um, I know I know I did. Um, I want you to know, I have absolutely no desire to take a sledgehammer to anyone's view of anything. There are Bible teachers that take that approach. I am not one of them. I The Lord has brought me to a place where I honestly do not need anyone to agree with me. I need some people to agree with me because I don't want to teach false doctrine, all right? So there's a sense in which I, if I'm just the only person saying this, we have a problem, right? Um, but as far as our relational connection, I don't need you to agree with me. Um, my self-worth is not tied to you coming along and adopting all my views on everything. I promise you I have some views a little out there. You probably weren't adopting, all right? Um, these are more these are more mainstream what I'm presenting here. Um, I actually enjoy being around people that have different views than I do. I think that's how we learn. You're really not learning if you're only hanging around with people that share your view. And so I want to say up front as I close, I am inviting you, begging you, pleading with you to ask questions as we go along. Um, push back against things I'm saying. Say, well, what about this? What about this verse? I've been taught this. What about this? Like that, that's how we learn. That's true Bible study, all right? Now, we have a big group, so it can't be a dialectic learning style. We can't just be talking back and forth. We'd never get done. I have to lecture. But I think we can bring a little bit of dialectic in if you guys will email me your questions. I put it there on the listening guide. Stop me after class with your questions. Like, I want to hear how is this hitting you? How is this landing on you? Because I want to be a very gentle guide through this storyline of the Bible that we're going to be walking through. Um, and I, I told my husband last night, I was like, I really am going to, I need to reel it in. This is the most exciting thing I have ever studied in my whole life. I mean, talk about just the most life-giving, aside from my salvation experience, Writing this study has been the most life-changing thing I've ever done. And I was telling my husband, I was like, that's actually a liability when you're a teacher. Because I don't want to come in here and, and run you over with my excitement. All right. So I'm going to practice some holy chill. Right. I'm going to take it down a few notches. Because I want you to feel the freedom to learn. To learn. And learning requires asking questions. It requires pushing back against your teacher sometimes, right? And so I invite that. I invite that. Um, the workbook, I want to point you to this. It is written in layers. All right, so this is a little new. I don't think I've written a study for you written like this. Um, so if you will turn to page 13. All right, so it starts week one. Every week you'll have a little bit of an intro, all right? 
And then you get into layer one. I don't divide it into days anymore because a lot of people don't divide it into days. A lot of you sit down and you do it all at one sitting or you might do it a couple times a week. Um, and so I've divided it into layers. Also, this means that if you don't get to day five, who cares? You pulled back maybe one layer. Maybe you pulled back two layers. If you didn't get to layer five, no big deal, all right? Um, so layer one is just reading the text. Layer two is marking it up. So that's on page 16, that starts. Now, some weeks you have less reading the, than others. The week on the prophetic view is lots of reading, so I give you almost nothing to mark. Try to balance that out a little bit. It's a shorter passage. I'll have you mark some more things. All right, and then we move on to layer three, page 23. That's where you're continuing the observation process, and you're just answering questions. You're not really having to think a whole lot. You're just having to find the answers. All right, and then layer four, you begin the process of interpretation. So that's on page 26. That's going to be a little bit more cross-referencing. All right, let's, so let's, let's interpret this a little bit. What does this mean? All right, and then layer five is the application. So you're kind of, how does this work in our life right now? All right, listen, everybody in this room has a different life going on. Some of you don't have as much happening. You can sit, you can get all through all five layers, easy peasy. Some of you have little ones. Some of you are caretaking for a parent or you you're traveling. Listen, try to get through layer one. If you have the time and opportunity, if you have the privilege of a little bit more, you can carve out more space, get through a few more layers. But if you can at least read the passage, layer one, you'll be able to come in here. You won't come in here cold. You'll kind of, even if you don't understand it, you will have had a little exposure. So that would be, like, make that first layer your goal, and then whatever you can do after that, awesome, all right? And just know, we'll peel back five layers of this onion, and there's, like, 2,000 more, all right? So we're just beginning to understand heaven in this. So any questions before I close? All right, if you think of any, because if you're like me, I never can think of any, and I sure as, I'm not going to say that word. I'm not going to ask it in a room this big, all right? If you have a question, write it down and email it to me. Um, I can keep it anonymous, but it helps me know what people are struggling with. Right? If you're not giving me feedback, I, I might assume you know that something makes sense and like everybody's like, that makes no sense. I want to know if something doesn't make sense or if you have a question. All right? Are we good? Everybody feeling okay? We're okay. All right, we're in this together. We got 10 weeks to do it. All right? All right, let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your word and I thank you for... Um, just the privilege of being in this room with these women. I thank you for how much fun we're going to have together walking through the storyline of Scripture and just watching you do what you've done since the beginning of time and just pursuing over and over and over again, pursuing um, pursuing your people. And uh, we just thank you for how it's going to encourage our faith, how it's going to challenge it too, and how it's going to, the best part, is it's going to move us out of this building into our world so that the kingdom can come here on earth and that your will will be done here as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, we want to be instruments of that. And so use this study to, to make us those instruments. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.